One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Janko Tipsarovic, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. After a weekend of the highest sporting drama, but in golf, not tennis, we ask whether it's time that the Davis Cup follows the lead of the Ryder Cup. We talk about the big prize money increases just announced at the Australian Open, and in our big interview, we speak to the Times tennis correspondent Neil Harmon, right here on the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Tennis Podcast. In it, we're going to talk about the week that's just gone. We're going to have a debate about the Davis Cup. We'll talk over the prize money increases that have just been announced by the Australian Open in their attempts to avoid a player boycott that we talked about a few podcasts ago here uh, during the US Open. All that was uh, going off after the Sunday Times revealed that the the tennis players on the men's side weren't happy with the amount of uh, compensation they were getting and you may remember we spoke to Craig Tiley the tournament director of the Australian Open who said he was a hundred percent confident that all the players would show up in January in Melbourne so do listen back to that one if you want to hear what he had to say but uh, yeah I mean it's a it's a fascinating story it's uh, it's been expanded upon today with the Australian Open announcing their prize mini levels and we'll uh, we'll go over that as well we'll also speak to Neil Harmon the tennis correspondent of the Times newspaper and uh, hear all about his career he's had a, a long and varied career in the sport of tennis and uh, he's got plenty to say episode 14 Catherine can't believe it yeah 14 was uh, 14 episodes worth of stuff to say it's pretty well d- impressive well not, not always stuff to say but hey we, we, we've said it anyway haven't <laughs> yeah, we? exactly <laughs> uh, but uh, no it's been it's been good fun I mean uh, goodness me you know I was thinking back to when we started back in May a lot has happened in that time hasn't it we've had um I think we one of our early podcasts was done at the Queen's Club when uh, David Nalbandian had his complete meltdown, didn't he? That and, was an uh, eventful one, yeah. <laughs> uh, we also had um, Andy Murray reaching the Wimbledon final, Andy Murray gold medal at the at the Olympics, Andy Murray Grand Slam. It's all happened to Andy Murray in the last three months. Hey, maybe we're maybe we're his good luck charm. <laughs> yeah, we can be his official good luck charm. Yeah, we are Andy Murray's mascot. So if you uh, if you don't like Andy Murray, probably not Mascots best to be listening that to us. Mascots right aren't now. required to wear any kind of costume. I hope. Yeah, no, we we don't have an outfit or anything like that. Actually, we 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 actually do have um, our own Grigor Dimitrov outfits, don't we? Because uh, they look a lot like our Roger Federer outfits. 
Yeah, they are. Uh, he's our, he's our favourite player here on the tennis podcast um, because uh, we, we'll let you into a bit of a secret. One of the reasons we started the tennis podcast is because we are huge fans of uh, a podcast called the Tuesday Club, which is uh, based on Arsenal Football Club and some tennis and some fans of that podcast. Uh, uh, of that football team created their own podcast called the Tuesday Club, and we, we're we're devout followers of that uh, of that podcast. And we were trying to think, well, what is their secret? They've got these this enormous uh, v- listening base of of people uh, who love that podcast. And we thought, well, what we need to do is we need to adopt. Uh, a tennis player equivalent of Arsenal Football Club for for the tennis podcast. So we need somebody hugely talented, very flamboyant, but oh, not let's always not go uh, overboard on compliments for Arsenal Football Club. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but the, here's here's the uh, here's the, the the issue: not always successful, or, or sometimes disappointing and underachieving. So I know that might sound a little bit mean to Grigor Dimitrov, but but let's be honest. He has all the talent in the world. He hasn't produced yet. So he's our favourite, Catherine. He most certainly is, yeah. We we still eagerly await his rise to the top. We, <laughs> Who knows how much longer we'll Is it going to happen? Oh, what did I say last time we discussed whether it was going to happen? I said I was starting to get a bit worried and you said you still were keeping the faith. I'm still a believer. Yeah, I am too. I am too. He's drawn one Monaco in the first round uh, in Kuala Lumpur, hasn't he? You see, this is this is what happens. We actually look up his uh, his draw. Oh, Kuala Lumpur was last week, wasn't it? I'm, I'm oh yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. He lost it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he, uh, he actually. I think he. Yeah, I, I saw um, uh, Richard Gasquet won the uh, won the tournament uh, last week in Bangkok. Yeah, didn't he? And he he's. He's sort of cut from similar cloth, isn't he? I mean, Gascar saw his first professional match in Monte Carlo. He was fourteen uh, years or something, ago. wasn't he? Yeah, when he was when he was just a, just a, a very young. T- I think he was fifteen, and uh, of course he was on the the front cover of Tennis Magazine when he was nine years of age. And uh, he still wins these sort of tournaments, doesn't he? But I don't know. I just can't believe that he's ever actually going to win a big one I mean I think he's been a, he's been a Wimbledon semi-finalist hasn't he but you don't get the feeling that he's actually going to follow it through people don't talk about him that much anymore I mean yes he won an event last week didn't he but I mean people aren't now saying oh Richard Gasquet's won an event you know perhaps he'll perhaps this will be a boost and he'll go on to become a Grand Slam contender again he's not really on on people's radars anymore in in though in that context is he I don't think I, I'm certainly that's not really turning my head I'm sort of looking at him thinking yeah he's he should be winning sort of lower level tournaments every now and then he's good enough for that but he doesn't have what it takes to go all the way maybe he'll surprise us you know every now and yeah. then somebody does but well, I mean, he's the sort of talent that could, isn't he, in, in that regard? Um, I mean, I, I think a women's equivalent, I saw Nadia Petrova won the title uh, last week on the women's side, you know, and she's another player who's been around for a decade. And but when the, and, and she's got lovely talent. I mean, she really volleys well, I always think. She plays great doubles, but you'd never actually expect her to knock over the top players and go all the way at a big slam. Well... Nadia Petrova won last week, and she and then strange result this week against Lee Na. Six, she was six love up. She was she had a six love first set, and then went on to lose to Lee Na. I mean that, generally speaking, is not the behaviour of a of a 
Grand Slam champion or, or a potential Grand Slam champion, is it? Or Petra Kvitova aside, we all know what happened to her at the US Open. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's that inconsistency, isn't it? It's that, you know, feeling of um, you just, you, they're never safe as houses when you're watching them, are they? You just, you just feel like no. there's doubt in their mind and consequently there's doubt in your mind as to whether they will fulfil their potential. Two of the big four back on court this week, albeit at different tournaments. Got Novak Djokovic back in Beijing. I think we've got Andy Murray in Tokyo. Um, first time we've seen Murray since uh, since the US Open. He's been putting his feet up. And I noticed he made a, a, a very brief fleeting appearance back on Twitter today in which he just said uh, uh, something along the lines of, ah, Twitter, uh, what, what's been going on? You know, that kind of uh, As if sort he's of been update. sort of... Out, out of the uh, the real world in sort of a well, 112 a days I read since his last tweet. Um, so he's been uh, keeping a low profile on the social uh, the social media. But uh, and then next week, of course, Shanghai is uh, the big uh, Masters 1000 event, and uh, Roger Federer announced today that he's uh, he's going to be there. Uh, there were some question marks over whether he would. We still obviously are without uh, the fourth man of that uh, top quartet in Rafael Nadal, but. Um, he has been saying one or two things recently, hasn't he? Who's that, Rafa or Federer? Yeah, Rafael Nadal. I think he's been. Yeah, um, I've. Re- he's been. Say- he he did a couple of interviews that I read, and uh, he wasn't putting a date on his return as such. But uh, but I I mean you know there's, there is progress being made. I think. Yeah, that's certainly the impression we're being given. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to put a date on it is he because that's then putting pressure on himself and I don't know maybe he, he does have a date in his mind but it's certainly not something he would ever let on to the media I don't think I mean they've always kept a very close camp haven't they I I have read a couple of places I mean it's just hearsay at the moment from people that claim to have spoken to his to his camp but I have read in a couple of places that he is looking at um, Rio 2016 the Rio Olympics in 2016 as a potential um, stop date for his for his career sort of targeting that I think we'd take that wouldn't we and that, that gives us another four years of Rafa and the Dow and as, as long as we can have him fully fit that'd do I think so I think it's not I think that sounds about right really how I'm what more the date isn't what surprises me what, what more surprises me is that he's he's thinking about it in those terms maybe it's just that his he's just in so much pain you know it's taking such a toll he has to have a an end time in mind in order to to get him through daily you know not suggesting he doesn't enjoy the tour and let's have a prediction let's have a prediction competition between now and rio 2016 how many grand slam titles is rafael nadal going to win go catherine so what's that is that that's four full years isn't it um, I yeah. think he will win the French Open at least twice in that period. I think he's got another Wimbledon in him. I'm going to go four, five in four years. Wow. What do that's you a, think? That's a, well, where are the other two coming from? I think he'll win, I think, two to three, two to three French, um, a Wimbledon, and, and, and maybe one hardcore title, maybe an Australian Open. Okay. Well, I'm going to go for. I think Nadal will win two wow. more before he retires. Bo- I think both he'll in, win both in France. I think he'll win both of them in Paris. I can see him winning two more French Opens. I think that's it. I think. Wow. Um, I think it's. 
I mean, listen, I, I've been proved wrong by Rafael Nadal enough times, so I'm, uh, there's a there's a decent old chance that the, this could happen again. But uh, you know, on those surfaces, I think the 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 knees are a problem on the um, on the hard courts now. Um, I think we've seen that. I mean, he's still capable of coming back strongly. Uh, he knows how to play on grass, but I think now that Murray's got to that level that he has, now that Djokovic has got where he is, Federer's still around, I think that there are enough players that can cause Nadal trouble on grass. Um, so that would be my, my gut feeling. That's so there we go. A couple of re- revelations here on the Tennis Podcast. If you if you happen to be uh, signalled in episode two hundred and eighty four in two in twenty sixteen and you've been told to come back to this point in in episode fourteen, hi, um, we are we are making this prediction right now four years ahead of time. Uh, Catherine says five more Grand Slam titles for Rafael Nadal. I say two. Um, so, well, there's been a, one or two uh, more developments uh, in the tennis world today with the, the Australian Open announcing a, a very hefty prize money increase today, um, which uh, is designed to appease the players who who were making a very real threat of a boycott uh, um, of next year's Australian Open in January, just a few months away. That was all going on during the US Open, and um, we spoke to Craig Tiley, as I mentioned, uh, the tournament director, who said wasn't concerned. He obviously knew that they were going to be putting their hands in the pocket, um, and uh, that's what they've done today. I think it's somewhere around the, the $4 million mark that they've uh, that they've increased uh, the prize money pool by. The ATP have responded uh, with a statement to Day saying they welcome the news and uh, and they want to continue working with them on future uh, understanding of each other. Um, so it does sound more or less good news in that regard, Catherine. Yeah, I think there's two. I think there's two factors at play. There's number one, the Australian Open have always been a very forward-thinking Grand Slam, haven't they? Since the 70s, early 80s, when they were not really considered a Grand Slam Um, they have made huge strides and continue to make huge strides to be ahead of the game in order to to keep themselves on a a par and you know just in terms of you know they had a roof before any of the other slams all of that kind of thing and I think they were the second slam to introduce equal prize money for, for men and women so I think there's that I think there's the fact that they would want to be ahead of the game in terms of upping their prize money and then there's also the the threat um, that there's been of a boycott, and I'm I'm not sure how real the threat has been. I think, from from what I understand, from what I've read in a couple of places, there were there, there were a couple of more um, disruptive players who were who were leaking stories to the press, perhaps um, you know, not necessarily without without cause, but ones that ones that felt more strongly about it. Um, I mean, I just don't think the Australian Open would have let a boycott happen. I think this was this uh, this was inevitable. Um, some kind of arrangement re- being reached. We don't know yet what the distribution of that additional four million dollars will be. That will be interesting to see. Um, presumably, the distribution will be more, will be greater, will be bottom heavy, if you like. Will be um, will increase uh, prize money for early round losers more than it will at the top end of things but well i think that was the the gist of their mm, complaint wasn't it absolutely yeah i mean that's that's um why the atp will presumably be um particularly happy with it because i mean it's a very interesting study isn't it the plight of a 
of the lesser spotted, you know, lower ranked tennis player that's struggling to to get together airfare to to get down to Australia to play events like that that you know you don't hear about them very much um and you know i think there is a, a big drop off in in prize money and in um a day in the life if you like of a of somebody as soon as you get outside the top 100 i think it's it's pretty tough going from what i can gather 19.3 million pounds according to the daily mail in uh, 2013 is going to be the uh, the prize money pool 31 million i think that's us dollars i'm reading on uh, on espn so there's uh, there's plenty of money uh, going into this uh, this pot um 4.15 million dollar increase is the is the exact uh, amount um and apparently according to craig tiley who we spoke to a few episodes ago it's the largest uh, increase from one year to the next so they've certainly they've certainly been um proactive haven't they let's say that and uh, and and fair play to them for that i know a lot of people might look at it and think well hold on these tennis players earn an absolute fortune as it is and i, I don't think anybody certainly at the top end is is arguing with that but the point you make is is an accurate one i mean i, I saw an article written by sam groth the um the australian player who's just sort of trying to make a living and uh, and it doesn't sound as though there's an awful lot to be made to be honest unless you can get to a to a certain ranking um, and also i think the other the other comparison is 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 with with sports such as golf and uh, and it's uh, a sport that we're going to talk about now in regard to the Ryder Cup that's just been played and the Davis Cup that it's always compared to, uh, but in in the Ryder Cup, as, as Andy Roddick, uh, sorry, in golf rather, as Andy Roddick is always pointing out, that the the percentage of money made by the sport that actually ends up in the pocket of uh, of of the player is considerably less in tennis than it is in many other sports. That's yeah. the biggest gripe they have, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And he did make that point very eloquently, didn't he, Andy? I think he made the comparisons with the NBA as well and uh, and golf, obviously. And it's it's hard to argue with that, really, isn't it? It's that was that is a pretty powerful argument. The the uh, percentage in tennis is startlingly lower. Um, than in those other sports, those other comparable sports. So, um, no, I think it's a positive thing, and I think um, the Australian Open have have handled the whole situation very, very well indeed. Really, I mentioned uh, golf, and uh, we've enjoyed this incredible Ryder Cup over the last few days. Uh, anybody in Europe, and uh, anybody in Europe has anyway. I think anybody in the United States listening to this is probably wishing we would just shut up right well, about here, or maybe they've off. just turned it off uh, <laughs> yeah. the podcast and uh, pressed the delete button. Well, sorry about that. If uh, if uh, if we're going to annoy you now, we're not going to rub it in. Although it was good fun, I have to say. Um, but um, more the point is is the format of the Ryder Cup, and I know I I, I don't I, I'm not about to say that I want the Davis Cup to be um, the United States against the rest of the world or anything like that because I I don't think there is a need to to change the I want it to be a global competition that that's mm. my view but having heard the views of so many different people over the years I, I even remember back to Andre Agassi as far back I think as 1999 uh, I remember being in in Hanover where he was uh, doing his pre-tournament interviews and and even back then 13 years ago he was giving his views on Davis Cup and saying the reason I don't play is because of the way it's scheduled you know trying to 
play these these four or five different matches every year at different parts of the year in all places of the of the of the globe it's just not workable really as much as i love it and what they need to do is they need to make it an every two-year competition uh they need to 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 put it over maybe a week or a two week a bit like an an extra grand slam make it a team event in one one country of the world uh, rotate that around the globe year to year and make a massive great big festival event of it um and and that's how how he thought that they should do it and and uh, he thought there'd be huge tv interest in covering that huge sponsorship interest and frankly i i think i share those those views uh, on the whole I do too. I absolutely share those views. In fact, um, when I was watching uh, the the Ryder Cup the other night, I was I was absolutely captivated. You know, I'm, I'm I enjoy golf, but you know, I'm a casual casual golf enthusiast. I watch the major events um, and the Ryder Cup, but you know, I'm not I'm not as much of a geek as I am with tennis by any means. Are you, you know, any I'm good not, at golf? I'm not checking. <laughs> I've never played in my life. Do you play? Quite good at crazy golf. Right. Okay. We'll leave that there. <laughs> leave that one there. Um, and I was watching and I was just thinking, goodness me, wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, if the Davis Cup were like this? Because it was so special. Um, I mean, you, you know, you don't need me to describe how emotional it was for, for those players to win and how much it meant to them. Um, and I think the place of a, of a unique um, team event like that in an individual sport is um, I think there is a place for it. Well, there's no doubt there's a place for it, and it becomes the significance of it is all the more because it's because it's usually a, a team. You can see how much they're all enjoying competing as part of a team, and everybody in tennis wants to play the Davis Cup, don't they? Um, yeah, and there is there is too much of a shortfall in 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 the amount of top players playing it. I mean, Murray and, and, and Federer they all love it, but it, they're having to be selective about when they play. I mean, I think people like Roddick are really admirable in the way that they've committed mm. to it. But you know, I think the, the the telltale sign for me is the fact that the past two American captains, Jim Courier and Patrick McEnroe, have both said. That the Davis Cup needs to change, and and they are the captains of their teams. Um, um, that that is a big a big factor for me. I mean, there are strong arguments that that the ITF and uh, and and those who cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Disagree with our view, make uh, about why it shouldn't be changed, that associations and federations rely on the income generated by the home and away uh, ties all around the world, um, you know, all of those sort of things, and, 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 and they're very valid points. But there's points ways and, of compensating, I think. You know, you could, as you made the point, you know, via the the mouthpiece of Andre Agassi, the, the revenue, the sponsorship, etc., revenue of, of, of an event like the one you described, um, you know, there could be some kind of distribution to, to all the various federations, that sort of thing. You know, there's... I, they I, definitely need to be a trickle down, wouldn't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I do understand that argument. I think I can't really, other than a financial one, you know, that ITF and federations stand to lose some money, I cannot see an argument against making it a biannual event. I mean, just the significance of it would become so much more. more it would more than double, I think, in significance if it became a, a biannual event. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the 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 fact for the the one big thing for me is is on the the radio station I work for, BBC Radio Five Live, no longer really send uh, a reporter to the Davis Cup final, uh, which is a shame. I remember when they did; uh, they have to make choices these days, and and it's the same for a, a huge amount of, of of our colleagues as well, and and the budgets that they have to work with to travel to events, um, and and I think that it needs to be made more important uh, again. Um, mm. We are going to have this debate further and, and, and talk to, to some people um, during the O2 event, the ATP World Tour Finals. We'll talk to a, a couple of people who, who disagree with that view. I think it's it's very important to put both sides. And um, a colleague of mine, Craig Gabriel, a good uh, uh, a cracking journalist from Australia who um, who travels around the world and has done for for many many years is, is strongly of the opinion that Davis Cup should not change and uh, we've agreed on Twitter we've decided we're going to have a debate here on the tennis podcast during the O2 event um, so we'll uh, we'll have that for you and uh, try and get some other viewpoints as well um, so that's uh, that's the the chat on uh, Ryder Cup and Davis Cup and I think now it's about time we talked to one of of our leading tennis journalists in the sport, our special guest in episode 14, because Neil Harmon has been covering the sport for the Times newspaper for the last decade. Before that, he worked for the Sunday Telegraph and the Daily Mail, including a long spell covering football. And we spoke to him in Miami earlier this year to pick his brains. So let's take you back in time to when you first covered tennis. How, how has it changed as a journalist to cover the sport? Well, actually, my first Wimbledon, uh, covering the final, I had to sit on a step um, because I was the junior then for the Daily Mail and Laurie Pignon, dear Laurie, was the correspondent and there weren't enough seats for the number threes as I was in those days to get a seat. So I was forced to get my, uh, my posterior particularly cold and watch, I think it was McEnroe Connors in the 1982 Wimbledon final sitting on a step. So things have, we actually get cushions at Wimbledon now, so I suppose you could say that there's been a major development from that, from that point of view. Um, but covering the championships, well, of course, it was typewriters. You used to go onto the phone and, and dictate your report onto, onto copy. Uh, there was a little room in the southeast hall at Wimbledon, the telephone room, I can see it now. Uh, j- just mayhem, but real, real old-style journalism. You had to think on your feet. There was no time. You raced to a phone. 
dictated copy. It's a little more sedate now, although having said that, of course, with, with the finals starting later, ending later, you're still having to, to, to think on your feet, as it were, but now you can sit at a computer and your thoughts are put down that way rather than actually dictating them to someone down a phone line. So it has changed dramatically. And in terms of the sport itself, I mean, you mentioned that your first Wimbledon final was Connors McEnroe. I mean, you know, we, we, we're used to seeing these wonderful finals between Nadal and Federer, and they're pretty, pretty pally, really. I don't think that was the case with Connors and McEnroe, was it? No, that's, that's certainly the case. There was a little bit of angst there, I think, which, which added to the, uh, the mystique of the, um, of, of the players at that, that time. I mean, I was very lucky. I saw, I saw Boris Becker win at 17 on centre court, which I, I think when I, when I reflect back on the matches I've seen, to see a 17-year-old winning the championships in the style he did was, was remarkable. Seeing Michael Chang win, win the French Open in 1989 at 17 years of age, the day after Arantxa Sanchez won it at 16. I mean, these, these, I don't think we'll see those days again. Because, Why is that? Well, the, the, the game has changed. I, I think that the players are developing more physically later in life. I just don't think that 15, 16, 17-year-olds now can contend with the, with the likes of the 25, 26-year-olds that are playing now, and which is, I, I think, a, a, a fascinating development because I think it now makes parents, kids, have to learn to be more patient. Of course, they appreciate the stories of yore, but you've got to look at now where where players are coming through and the likelihood of a teenage Grand Slam champion seems to be receding as the years go by. You're more likely to peak now in your early to mid-twenties than it was perhaps in in those days. A A phenomenon could come along and take people by people by surprise and the game by storm i'm not quite sure that that can that can happen today the physical development takes a wee bit more time and you look at djokovic having his his unbelievable year of last year at 23 years of age so that seems to be the optimum age now for the for the men and even the women lena francesca schiavone Sam Stozer winning their maiden Grand Slams in their late 20s so that the, 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 the thoughts of a Capriati or, or a, a Sanchez Vicario or even a Graf coming along and winning in their teenage years the cyclical element of the sport has now taken another, an, uh, another step and it looks to me as though it's the, the likelihood is that players are going to take their, take their time and I think that requires an enormous amount of patience in the development of the player and also the, the, the pathway to success. People have got to appreciate it's going to take longer to, to, to break through than perhaps it did 20, 25 years ago. And as wonderful as those victories were, I mean, you know, you, you reel them off and they're the ones that everybody remembers, aren't they? Becker winning Wimbledon at 17, Chang at that sort of age too, Hingis coming along. There are pitfalls as well to, to, for, for them as individuals to be having that sort of success at that sort of age. Well, yes, uh, it, it's somewhat unnatural, I think, for a teenager to suddenly be thrust into the, the, the limelight. Uh, I, I, once again, I, I do go back to Boris Becker because he's someone I can, I can relate to having seen him win at, at 17, following his career. Of course, he won it the next year as well. 
went on to win the US Open and the Australian Open. But but following Boris's career through that time, you had to you marvelled at the, the the ability of a, of a young person to be able to cope for the for better or ill with 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 what he what he was given. I mean, it was a, it was a, a god given talent. Uh, and he, he, you know, it was tough for him. He had to, he had to, he had to keep. As I say, you don't, you don't expect your son or your daughter to to be a Grand Slam champion or to be a champion at anything. Well, you know, when when they're when they're so young, uh, and the the ability to to take all that on board. And of course, in later life, it, it, it's 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 not been easy for Boris to have to live with that that label as the youngest ever Wimbledon champion. He's had his problems personally and privately, and very but very publicly. You don't get the chance actually to enjoy your your childhood because I still think. I mean, my daughter, my oldest daughter is 19, and I still think of her as a child. And you you look at, at Boris, and two years before that, he was there. He was on centre court at Wimbledon, holding aloft the greatest trophy in tennis. And there was I think there was a statistic that that at one point 100 percent of people in Germany would have known who he was if they saw him. Well, you, you take that into consideration. And if, if, if he fell off the rails a couple of times in subsequent years and did things perhaps that you thought were slightly abnormal, well, who would be surprised given what he did when he was, when he was so young? So I think it's probably better that perhaps players can be slightly more, if I say well-adjusted, I'm not suggesting that Boris wasn't, but that they can be allowed to live a, a normal life for the most part, and then have their breakthrough time later on, because they they are more mature. They've grown up. They know what it's like. They can cope with it. Uh, and as I say, we shouldn't perhaps be surprised that the things that have happened to the teenage phenomenons, like Boris, like Hingis, like Capriati, happened to them because it was com- it was just so completely, uh, you know, against goes against the grain that they could be so good so young. You're somebody who likes to break a story, like any good journalist does. What what story in tennis are you probably most proud of? If you if you think back and think that was the one that made people sit up and go, "Wow, bloody hell!" Well, I suppose, I, I, if I may say, the, the the year I won Sports Reporter of the Year, I, I broke the story of the Tim Henman retirement from tennis. But I also broke the story that year of the split of. Andy Murray and Brad Gilbert. Uh, I'd heard about it. I rang Brad. His response was non-responsive, which, knowing Brad, I thought, well, <laughs> by saying nothing, he said everything. I, so I, I knew I was right. I knew I was right. You've always got that 1% of your 100% certainty. Well, maybe it's not, but anyway, I went, I went with it, and the next day they, uh, they announced it. So... Just give us an idea. I mean, you've you've covered all the all the big tournaments, all the slams. What what is your favourite location on the circuit, and, and and why? Well, I like Indian Wells tremendously. I think what they have done there over the years. I actually had my honeymoon there in 1989, so it does have a bit of a special place in my heart. But what they have achieved there, that the the stadium and the site that they've built, the their ability to respond to the break the breakup of the ISL deal back in the early 2000s. When it looked so, the whole the whole sport would go belly up, and um, they 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 fought and fought. They uh, established a, a new syndicate, but eventually got Larry Ellison, the um, CEO of Oracle, on board. And look at that tournament now; it's absolutely magnificent. 
uh, one, one of the, the, the great testaments to what you can do if you have a pioneering spirit. Wimbledon, of course, because it is what it is. It's the All England Club. It's magnificent. What they've done over the years there is quite superb. Move with the times, led the way. The sport, the, 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 the event is still the one that everybody wants to win. And I must say, I love the French Open. I love Paris. I love clay. I just think it's the ultimate test of a player's spirit and heart and determination. And. Um, uh, and, and, and there is no night play yet, so you can actually stroll back to your hotel, have a nice rabbit stew and um, a couple of glasses of brewery, and life is good. You're in the right job, aren't you? <laughs> um, just, just a, a few words about uh, tennis today and, and the, the players that we have at the top of the game. As, as we've said, you started with the Connors McEnroe final. You've seen Sampras and Agassi come and go. Where does this group rank compared to all of those guys? I would say on the men's side, the game is now stronger than it's ever been. That the talent of the players, their their position in the sport, their their iconic status, Federer and Nadal especially, and Djokovic is getting there. And one day I hope Andy Murray will get there as well. You know, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal are absolute. I don't want to say anyone transcends the sport because I, don't, I think the sport will always have to be bigger than the people who participate in it. But you, you just look at Roger Federer and you look at Rafael Nadal and how they respond, how they behave, how they interact with people, the positions they are in and sponsorship, their, their grasp of, 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 of their power, because they have enormous power, uh, how they use it. Is, is always fascinating to me because they're, they seem on the surface to be great mates, but I think behind the scenes there's a little bit more to that than meets the eye. But they, they absolutely hold themselves tremendously well. On the women's side, it's a little bit tougher. I, I think the, 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 this, the standard is not as good as it was of the days of Navratilova, Evert, Graf, Mandlikova. Uh, we're, they're struggling a little bit. I think that's cyclical. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it probably is. Um, it's just that you take Azarenka's currently the world number one, Sharapova the world number two. They have good, solid um, uh, coaching setups. I think behind them there's perhaps, an, there's perhaps a tendency to part with a coach at a whim. How many coaches has Elena Yankovic had in the last five years? Probably a dozen. I mean, you can't. You can't keep going like that and, 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 and succeed, I don't think. So there are problems, um, but on the whole, I think the sport's in a very, very good spot. It's, um, the people who play it are fantastic. The Federer, Federer and Nadal, to my mind, have taken it to an entirely new and unique level. Okay, well, that's uh, Neil Harmon talking to us earlier this year. And uh, I think it's safe to say, Catherine, that uh, Neil throws himself into the sport and, uh, and, and really enjoys his job. And, uh, you know, I think that, that is one of the great things about the, the, the job, isn't it, that, that we do. I think we, we pinch ourselves sometimes and wonder how we're, we're lucky enough to be doing it. Yeah, I think the people that do a job like this best are people that at the core of it are our fans um you know not in a not in a way that affects their professionalism or anything but uh but you know people that just just love it and appreciate it and um 
and want you know I wanted to get into to tennis journalism because I I wanted I'm almost a bit evangelical about it really I wanted to bring it to the attention of as many people as possible and you know make other people love it the way I do um and I think I think Neil um has that attitude as well and um I think he's his love affair with the sport shows through his his journalism and his twitter feed which numbers some 25,000 tweets or something like that he um, is a little bit prolific on there he is, isn't, isn't he? he goodness me he doesn't half go for it on there um as well uh, I, I noticed a, a story he did uh, last week which which um interested me uh, an interview he did with a british player called andrew fitzpatrick uh showing the other side of the tennis player the, the, the away from the superstardom of it all and uh, Andrew had been out in uh, Vietnam um, during a, during a, a I think a satellite tournament over there just trying to rack up a few wins and get a few points on the board and in the course of a week he he was uh, he was robbed uh, from from the, the the digs that he was he was in he got his uh, his about a thousand pounds stolen from him that he was basically using to to travel there and get back with uh, he, he went through a, a tropical storm and then he was there. Then he 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 said he'd been the victim of an attempted sexual assault as well in the in the showers, and uh, they'd had to try and uh, catch the uh, the guy concerned. So he, he had a lot to put up with, but it was uh, it was quite a read. It shows uh, that it's not all uh, glitz and um, Rolls Royces and swanky hotels. No, well, that's exactly what I was saying, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's really interesting seeing that other side of the coin. Um, you know, obviously the people at the top are multi, multi millionaires, and you know it's, it's it's it can be the the stock, and they should they should be rewarded because they are absolutely brilliant. They are you know the, at the top of any profession or almost any profession. You know, it's extremely lucrative. If you're the best in the world at investment banking, that's pretty lucrative as well. But it is very interesting, and I think everybody should take the time to to see what it's like being you know ranked i don't know for where's andrew fitzpatrick fitzpatrick ranked 400 or something like that you know playing futures event and it's not just the money it's you know that they're playing in front of no crowd whatsoever they're as you say um you know struggling to to get together the money to to even cover train fares or hotel you know they're staying in hostels and all that kind of thing and no it's very interesting indeed i read a, a novel actually um, I'm sure lots of tennis fans as geeky as me will have read it um, by Lionel Shriver and it's 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 a fictional novel but um, obviously a lot of research has gone into it and it studies a, a couple where the um, the woman is a very successful tennis player and the man is a you know a struggling for, ranked 400 in the world and it just studies the you know how divisive a factor that is in their relationship and and just the difference in lifestyles the the sheer difference in in lifestyles that they can be going on the court and playing the same sport um but their lives are completely different and, yeah it's not um, all rory McElroy and caroline wozniak is it no exactly exactly <laughs> so um i should have to give that neil Harmon article a read 
Yes, no, absolutely. Well, I uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, this edition of the Tennis Podcast. We'll be back uh, next week uh, with some news of how Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic got on uh, during the Beijing and Tokyo tournaments. And to look ahead, and we'll hopefully have the draws by then uh, of the Shanghai Masters 1000 as we uh, we build up to uh, the ATP World Tour finals at the O2 Arena. Just one small note as well. Over the last week, we've had uh, the Winter White Gala announced on Saturday. Day, the 8th of December during the Statul Masters Tennis. This is uh, a one-off event uh, on the Saturday night also held at the Royal Albert Hall and they're uh, going to transform uh, the Royal Albert Hall into a, what they call a winter wonderland and uh, I think it's going to be very snowy and very Christmassy and uh, and there's going to be lots of star guests, big A-list uh, celebrities there as well um, as well as the uh, the legendary tennis players such as John McEnroe and Goran Ivanisevic and uh, Pat Cash and Tim Henman and all the all the favourites that uh, everybody sees when they go to the Albert Hall every year. But uh, do make a note of that if you have an opportunity to. I, I don't think the tickets are going to be around very long. The Winter Whites Gala on Saturday the 8th of December in the evening there. And uh, I'm sure you can get tickets from uh, the Royal Albert Hall box office and the Statoil Masters Tennis website as well. Um, that's it for episode 14. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon. So you've heard our views on the Davis Cup. What do you think? Should it change or should we leave it well alone? Let us know on Twitter by writing to us at Tennis Podcast and we'll read out your views here next week. That's it for now. We'll be back next week with more chat and a big interview right here on the Tennis Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com